Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Gold Radio for May 2013. This month we're going to focus on content marketing, which is a bit of a buzzword at the moment, and I want to help you understand what it means, especially what it means for you and your business. I'm also going to be running a couple of workshops about content marketing later this month, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later in the show. Also in this month's show, I'll bring you a conversation with my friend Chris Pudney about another hot topic, which is telecommuting or working from home, and whether or not it's a good idea for your organization. But let's start by talking about content marketing. So in brief, content marketing is about creating material that teaches and sells. So let me explain what I mean by that. Think about all the material that you produce in your organization. Some of it might be for teaching purposes, but it's not promotional. So these are things like online courses and articles and training videos, educational CDs, books and ebooks, and things like that. So we call this educational material, obviously. Now some other material might be promotional, but not educational. In other words, it's the other way around. So these are things like your sales letters and your flyers and your brochures, promotional postcards, things like that. And we call this advertising material. Now, content marketing is where you combine the two. It's material that's mostly, let's say, about 80% educational, but also, let's say, up to 20% stuff that promotes your products and services at the very end. So, for example, you might write an article with seven tips about whatever it is, and then you add a bit at the end that promotes your business, and you can send it by post to your top prospective clients. Or you could run a webinar about the five biggest mistakes that people make in time management or buying a new home, whatever is your area of expertise. And at the end of the webinar, you promote your business. Or another example, you create a series of short video tutorials about how people can do something like deal with difficult people in the workplace or use their iPad when they travel or train their pets or whatever. And you publish them to YouTube and each video ends with a short promotion for your business. So the key idea is that you deliver value, huge value. And you do that first and after that you promote yourself. But of course, by providing this value, you're also positioning yourself as an expert, not just a salesperson. And that helps your promotion as well. That's important. I want to tell you a bit more about what sort of content to create later in the show. But first, let me tell you another reason why it's really important. And this is all to do with Google. So if you have a website, obviously you want it to appear at the top of Google. Or more accurately, you want it to be at the top when your ideal customers and clients are searching Google, searching for an answer that you can provide to their problem. Now this has always been the case ever since Google became the world's biggest search engine, and it's still the case today. Now, you'll do much better on Google if you understand one simple rule. It's a rule that Google has never changed. So to understand that rule, let me tell you a little bit about Google's history. So when the web was young, in the mid-1990s, when I first started using it, there was no Google. If you wanted to find something, you could search Yahoo, or AltaVista, or Lycos, or Hotbot, or Dogpile, or a handful of other search engines. They were all reasonably popular, without any of them being a standout choice over any other. Then, in 1998, a little upstart company called Google entered the market, and it changed everything. It was a huge success and it quickly grabbed the vast majority of market share, and that's still the case today. But what made Google so popular? It obviously didn't have first mover advantage, and it didn't have more powerful hardware than its competitors, and didn't have a lot of marketing money behind it either. The real reason Google succeeded was because it worked better. In other words, when somebody searched for something in Google, they saw better results than when they used something else. And the reason is simple. Google used a different system than everybody else for ranking its search results. It was based on a complicated mathematical formula, but in a nutshell, I can summarize it like this. People are smart, webmasters are devious. So I'll explain what I mean by that. Other search engines ranked web pages by looking at the words on the page, trying to analyze them to understand what the page was all about. So they looked at the length of the page and how often certain words appeared and what words appeared in the titles and the subtitles, what what words appeared in things called meta tags. And that was all well and good, except it was pretty easy to, to trick those search engines. 
and the smarter webmasters figured out ways to game the system so they'd use the keywords more frequently on a page or using them in titles and subtitles and filling the meta tags with these keywords even if they weren't relevant to the page and stuffing the page full of text in a white font so that the, the reader couldn't see them but the search engine would pick it up and things like that. And it ended up being a constant battle between the search engines who are trying to deliver the most relevant results to users and the webmasters who are trying to get their client sites to the top of the rankings. Now what happened was that Google did something different. Rather than looking at the words on the page, which the webmasters could control, Google decided to base its rankings on what other people thought about a page. So it did this by checking how many other web pages were linking to a page. So after all, if many other webmasters were linking to a page, Google figured that page must be worthwhile. And if those links came from reputable websites, which they themselves had many links to them, then that boosted its rankings even further. In other words, Google was relying on people rather than technology to assess a page. People are a lot smarter than technology, and they do a much better job of deciding when a page is relevant or not. And the proof, of course, came in Google's success. It, so it became number one very quickly, and it still is the case now. And, you know, you might say that was 1998, but what about now? And it's true that a lot has changed since then. That was, of course, before the time when there were iPhones and social media and Facebook and fast broadband for everybody. Many, many other changes that have happened in technology. And Google has changed its formula many times. In fact, it changes it daily. But that simple rule, that fundamental rule that says that people are smart, webmasters are devious, is still the basis of everything it does. So, for example, Google likes it whenever somebody links to one of your blog posts or likes one of your YouTube videos or comments on a Google Plus post that you write or visits your website from a Google search and doesn't immediately click the back button or forwards your email newsletter from Gmail or embeds one of your YouTube videos in their blog. And the key to this is that you should keep creating high-quality content. And that's why content marketing is so important. You should be very, very careful if internet consultants tell you that they can wave a magic wand and optimize your site for Google. And, you know, they can do little things that help, but only a little bit. The real secret is to keep creating material that other people genuinely value. Because Google is relying on those other people to assess the quality of you and your business. So keep producing high quality content that, that really helps people. And that's why content marketing is so important. So I hope you understand a little bit about the rationale behind me going on and on about content marketing. So later in the show, I'm going to show you how to create your high quality content. And you might be surprised at just how easy it is and just how quick it is to create a lot of high quality content easily and affordably. But before we do that, Let's switch gears for a moment and let's look at, as I said at the start of the show, something else which is a hot topic, which is telecommuting. In February this year, Yahoo's CEO, Marissa Mayer, made a ruling that all Yahoo staff need to be in the office, physically in the office. In other words, no more telecommuting, no more working from home. And that decision sparked off a lot of discussion and debate and arguments, and both in the tech media and it even overflowed into mainstream media. And now that the dust has settled, my friend Chris Putney and I talked about some of the issues around this, including things like productivity, convenience, comfort and collaboration. And this is particularly relevant to us because we wrote the book Out of Office to help people to do the exact opposite of what, of what Marissa Mayer was ordering her staff to do. In other words, we want to help people move more out of office. So our initial reaction to her idea was quite negative, I must admit. But as you'll hear in this conversation, when we looked at it in more detail, we saw some benefits as well. So let's join that conversation now. We're going to have a controversial topic today. We're going to be talking about something that's been in the news recently. And it was about a month ago, uh, Yahoo CEO Marissa Mayer made a ruling that all staff at Yahoo need to be physically in the office. In other words, no more out-of-office work. And it came out in a memo, which was marked confidential and not for forwarding. But, of course, everything that is marked confidential and not for forwarding immediately gets forwarded and put on the Internet. And it started a whole firestorm of discussion and debate and arguments. Uh, and interestingly, not just in the tech media, but also in the mainstream media as well. And the, the, the discussions went in a number of different areas, uh, things like feminism and the impact on uh, working at home mums and dads, but mostly mums, uh, and then then got onto topics like workplace productivity, innovation, collaboration, and even personal choice and happiness. So 
It's about a month since it happened, and now that the dust has settled a little bit, let's look at the story and some of the debate that happened around it. And we, we certainly don't uh, claim that we've got knowledge and insight into everything related to, to this issue, because neither of us is a work-at-home mum, for example. Uh, but Chris is a full-time telecommuter, and so we'll discuss some of the issues around this, including things like productivity, convenience, comfort, and collaboration. So I guess we should start with a little bit of background, and Chris, I'll ask you to lead off on this, and then we'll get into some of the issues. Yep, no worries, Gihan. So for listeners who don't know who Marissa Mayer is, she's the newly appointed CEO of Yahoo. I say newly appointed. She joined Yahoo in July of last year. Uh, but former, prior to that, she spent over a decade at Google. She was there almost from its inception. She's in, she was employee number 20. And in the intervening dec- decade or so, she rose to hold many senior positions. Uh, and then she jumped ship and she went from uh, a tech titan like Google to Yahoo, a fa- former tech titan, but whose fortunes have dwindled in the intervening years. So she's taken uh, taken the helm at Yahoo when they're in a bit of a spiral. They could, they're almost circling the drain, as people sometimes say. So she's introduced several uh, initiatives since taking the helm, but the most recent and most controversial of these was uh, the one you've just alluded to, Gihan. It took the form of a memo that uh, Yahoo's HR head, Jackie Reese, circulated to all Yahoo employees, which, as you said, it essentially cancelled all out-of-office work arrangements come June of this year. So starting from June, all Yahooers are going to be required to work from the office. Uh, Several disgruntled Yahooers, it would appear, leaked this to the All Things Digital website and that lit up the blogosphere. So the initial reporting suggests that uh, this was this was initiative of Marissa Mayers um, and as well as wanting to improve interaction between employers by having them working face-to-face, uh, it was also suggested that she looked at Yahoo's VPN logs. Now, a VPN is a virtual private network, and it's simply a way of using the public internet to connect to private intranets in a secure fashion. So Marissa, being a bit of a data nerd uh, from her Google days, she had scrutinized these logs, and it appeared to her that people were abusing the out-of-office work scenario. They were slacking off. They weren't logging in. And so I think she wanted maybe to, to deal with that problem as well. So following uh, the uh, the leaking of this memo, uh, there were several critical commentators. Uh, uh, Richard Branson, for instance, on his blog, he said, give people the freedom of where to work. This seems a backward step in an age when remote working is easier and more effective than ever. A couple of academics chimed in. Jennifer Glass, a sociology prof at Texas, she said, it's sad to see a large employer go in this direction. There is no functional reason that people who work from home can't just be just as productive, sorry, can't work just as productively as they do from the office. Uh, another prof at UCLA said the telecommuting ban is a risky step that could further damage Yahoo employee morale and performance and undermine recruiting efforts in a hotly competitive job market. This policy certainly goes against the grain. That's one of the main reasons it's catching so much attention. So as well as those uh, those critics, there was a lot of speculation around why Maya had done this, things like that she's a bit of a workaholic and, it's, and out-of-office work isn't part of her work style, uh, that out-of-office wasn't working at Yahoo and was too hard to fix, so it was easy just to revoke it, that Yahoo's doing badly, Yahoo is doing out of office and therefore out of office work must be a part of, must be part of the problem. And, uh, other speculation that, uh, this is going to lead to good employees leaving Yahoo for workplaces where flexible arrangements are available. It'll lead to higher stress and lower productivity, higher fixed costs in order to accommodate a larger workforce on site and, uh, more traffic congestion and pollution. But it wasn't all bad, Gihan. Donald Trump chimed in, sprung to Mayer's defence with a tweet saying that she's right to expect Yahoo employees to come to the workplace versus working at home, and she's doing a great job. So there you go. Yeah, and I'm glad that you talked about both the pros and the cons, Chris, because there are there are pros and cons. And yeah. it was interesting you started by quoting Richard Branson saying, give people the freedom to where to work and <laughs> don't necessarily want airline pilots to be working out of office. That's right, or their stewards. That's right. And even the other comment about... Um, the quote you gave earlier about people who work from home can't work just as productively as they do from the office. And productivity is one of the things that uh, that we're going to talk about here. Uh, and it may not be the only thing. And perhaps Yahoo's decision was sensible and rational, but we'll talk about that. In fact, what we thought we'd do is rather than focus on the Yahoo decision and what it means for Yahoo workers, let's look at 
this issue as it relates to out-of-office workers in general. And so we've got five separate issues. And I think the way we'll run this, Chris, is a little bit of an interview. So I'll ask the questions and um, I'll invite you to share your experiences, insights, because you are you are a full-time telecommuter, a full-time out-of-office worker, as am I, but I don't work for somebody else, and you do. So you're the sort of person who might have been dragged back to the Yahoo's head offices, or you'd lose your job. So let's look at these five issues. So let's start off with number one, which is the productivity one, which we just alluded to. And there are a number of studies that have shown that out-of-office work, uh, if you do it properly, can actually lead to greater productivity. So not not only that there's no loss of productivity, it can actually be greater productivity. But it's interesting because I still get people asking me how I can get any work done when I'm working from home. So in your experience, Chris, what are the potential pitfalls and, and how do you overcome them? And I'm actually interested to know what you do personally as well to manage your productivity. Sure. So I get that question a lot too, Gihan, and I think when people are asking it, they're thinking about all of the distractions that uh, they would have when they were that when they're at home. So things like you know your family members and other uh, your family and other members of your household interrupting you or making noise in the background that can be a distraction. Also at home, there are always chores and household tasks to be performed. So you might be tempted to put a load of laundry through or do some cleaning or do the, do the washing up. I'm never tempted to do the washing up. <laughs> um, also at home, you've got the TV and the internet. So people feel that, you know, they might spend most of their day watching DVDs or surfing the net. When you're at home, you've also got uh, visitors. So family and friends might drop round for a cuppa or people might be delivering parcels or people might be coming around to do the garden or, or household chores that I'm not doing. And sometimes uh, your home can be a noisier place than the office. So uh, whether it's noise from inside or outside the home, that can also serve as a distraction. So there are all of these potential distractions that people might be uh, concerned about when working from home. The solution that that I have to these is about staying focused. So there are several ways that I tackle that. Firstly, my workspace is a home office. So I've got a dedicated study that's upstairs away from the main living areas and it has a door that I keep shut when I'm working. We also live on a fairly busy street, so noise can be a problem. So I sometimes play background music to mask that noise. It's not always possible to do that. There are certain tasks that I can't do with music playing. To minimise interruptions, I've let my family and friends know that during work hours, I'm not to be interrupted during standard office hours. Uh, it's not a hard and fast rule. In the afternoons, I'll sometimes take a break and uh, catch up with my daughter after she gets home from school. I also try to eliminate distractions, so things like turning off the notifications on my email client and instant messaging. So I don't take the phone off the hook. I, I, that's a what we call an urgent uh, communications channel. So I leave the phone on the hook, but some people might choose to take the phone off the hook as well. Um, I also plan my work day. So I maintain a to-do list. I update that regularly and order things according to priority and I tackle my tasks in order of priority. And I pace myself. I use a technique that's similar to what's called the Pomodoro technique, which involves uh a burst of 40 to 45 minutes of focused work and then a five-minute break. In fact, I think that's more like what our friend Alyssa Curtis calls a work sprint. Um, uh, the standard Pomodoro technique, I think, is 25 minutes. And there's other things like tracking your tasks and, and reviewing your the way you've worked in order to improve things. So that's what I do to, to stay focused, and that helps me deal with interruptions and distractions. And, and everything you're talking about, Chris, just seems obvious once you state it. And also, it just seems to be what you'd have to do in an office environment anyway. So it may not be family and friends interrupting, but there'll be colleagues and clients and other people interrupting. And so a lot of those things you're talking about are being focused and uh, managing your personal productivity. And the same whether you work from home or work in an office. Precisely. Okay, so that's productivity. And as we said, there's a lot of research that says that productivity can actually be improved for out-of-office workers. Um, the second thing is collaboration. Maybe that's not as simple because many of the objections to the, uh, to working out of office is all about collaboration because out of office workers uh, are less accessible, they're harder to accommodate for the people in the office and perhaps more difficult to collaborate with. And in our book, Out of Office, we actually have three chapters in the book that deal with this. We have a chapter about cooperation, collaborating and accommodating. But we have to admit that these are about 
trying not to make out-of-office work a disadvantage rather than saying how great out-of-office work is for collaboration. In other words, it's trying not to make it a negative. So what do you think, Chris? Uh, do you think there's a significant advantage to being in office rather than out of office? And what do you do, again, to interact more effectively with your colleagues? Yeah, I think it's swings and roundabouts, Gihan. So there are advantages to working in the office rather than out of office. So for the advantages, you get the advantage of having face-to-face interaction, which has higher fidelity for want of a better word, than online communication, which is usually by text or audio or video. So when you're discussing something with someone face-to-face, the conversation flows more easily. There are visual and audio cues that you can perceive more easily and get a better sense of, uh, you can communicate more better with uh, with those cues available to you that aren't necessarily available when you're communicating online. There's also the opportunity for serendipitous interaction when you're working in an office. So whether it's bumping into people at the water cooler or in the corridor or at the, the, the campus cafeteria, all of those situations, those serendipitous interactions, offer the present the opportunity for you to discuss your work in a more casual and freeform way that can often lead to new insights and innovation. And finally, it's easier to convene impromptu meetings when you're working in the office. So if there's a, a, an issue that needs to be tackled with some sense of immediacy, you can do that uh, in an impromptu fashion, which is much harder when you have distributed teams who might be in different countries or different time zones. So that, that serendipity thing is quite interesting, isn't it, Chris? And if you go back to Yahoo and Google, the companies that Marissa Mayer worked for, uh, Google is a company that has very little out-of-office work, but they provide a very strongly collaborative environment within their office to try and encourage that sort of serendipity and collaboration. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, as an ex-Googler, I think that's what Marissa Mayer is trying to emulate. She's taking a page from the Google Playbook uh, and trying to get people back into the office, bumping into one another and uh, having those serendipitous interactions that she hopes will lead to greater innovation and new products that Yahoo can, can implement and deploy. Yep. Yeah. So those are the advantages to being in office, but there are disadvantages too, and it's usually those interruptions and distractions that we alluded to earlier and endless pointless meetings that are real productivity killers in the in-office workspace. So as an e-worker, which is a phrase we use in the book to denote a full-time out-of-office worker, I obviously rely heavily on online interaction rather than face-to-face interaction. So some of the principles and techniques that I use with online interaction is that I make sure that I use the appropriate online communications channel. So I've got choices between things like whether to send someone an email, call them on the phone, send them an instant message, set up a teleconference or post something to our internal wiki or blogs. The criteria for making that choice are things like what we call signal quality in the book. So, uh, whether, so you can do things like filtering your email so that spam is automatically trashed or that certain messages automatically go to particular folders without you having to handle them manually. Or you can, uh, if you want to, you can screen your telephone calls. You can know that at certain times of day or from certain callers that uh, you don't necessarily want to answer those calls. There's also the idea of whether communication needs to be immediate or deferred. So if something is urgent, then perhaps uh, the phone is uh, the best way of communicating or an instant message. Otherwise, if you can defer the mess, if you can defer the response, then you can use something like uh, email instead. And finally, another criteria for selecting a communication channel is whether it's a one-way or a two-way communication. So if it's one-way, then perhaps posting it to a wiki or a blog is the appropriate choice. For two-way, then you might use something like the phone or instant message or or an email message. I think another thing to consider when you're choosing which kind of communication channel you use is how formal or informal you want to make the communication. And I've discovered this myself, Chris, when I use, uh, for example, a webinar where people can hear my voice and they can watch my slides. I sometimes have small group discussions by webinars or online meetings, I guess, where people are in the same situation, but without video. But as soon as you add video on there, you can choose to make it more informal if you want to. And a Google Hangout is a great example where if I run a Google Hangout, I can make it very informal because people can see each other's faces. They, 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 Tend to be less formal than they are in a uh, in a situation where they can where they can see slides and or they're focusing on documents on the screen rather than seeing people's faces. Okay, that's interesting. 
It's 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 not something I use a lot, Gihan. So it's an uh, an interesting insight. Mm. Um, additionally, uh, something else I do is I try and accommodate the the people I work with by letting them know about my availability. So simple things like I publish my calendar in Outlook, and that means that if someone wants to set up a meeting with me, they don't need to send me an email saying when am I available. All they need to do is look at my calendar, which I in which I block out the times when I'm unavailable, and then people can easily see when I am available and uh, and make arrangements that way. I also advertise. I've started advertising my time zone more widely because uh, there are some people I might not have dealt with who don't know that I work remotely, that I'm in Western Australia. So uh, I've added my address and time zone to my email signature, so that at least if I've sent someone an email, they've got a clue that uh, I'm not necessarily in Europe or the US. And uh, we've also started using a tool called MS Link at work, which is a, a sort of a it pervades all of the MS productivities, the Microsoft productivity suite. So it allows you to set up a profile. You add a photo. You can have a status message and add your location. And at first, I thought this was a little bit dinky and uh, didn't bother doing it myself. But then uh, as I started receiving emails from people, uh, I would see pictures of them. And many of these people I'd never dealt with face-to-face. I'd never met them before. And I found it really uh, it added a personal dimension being able to see just be able to see what they look like. So uh, I chose a very flattering picture of myself. I added that to my profile. I try and keep my status up to date, and I've added my location as well, which helps people know that I'm in a different time zone as well. So we call that showing yourself uh, as a principle in the out-of-office book. Yeah, great, great. So I think with collaboration, probably the jury might still be out, and maybe you can get close to as good collaboration out-of-office as you can in in office. Yeah, the, so the next thing that uh, and collaboration kind of leads on to this, uh, the, the next issue we'll look at is organizational culture. So one of the main reasons cited by Yahoo for for their new rule was the impact on their culture. And uh, the, the memo says, in part, they say this, they, they say, we want everyone to participate in our culture and contribute to the positive momentum. From Sunnyvale to Santa Monica, Bangalore to Beijing, I think we can all feel the energy and buzz in our offices. So, yeah, again, we'd have to say there's a definite buzz about being part of a physical team, but I reckon there's also a buzz about being part of a global or distributed team where you're kind of working from where you like on your own terms, but you can contribute to a shared goal. Uh, what's been your experience, Chris, in your organization? Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. And I think it doesn't, it's not necessarily about being out of office because many companies, Yahoo included and the one that I work for, are large multinational uh, organizations. So they have teams that are distrib- distributed across the globe in different countries and time zones. So whether the team members are out of office or simply in different offices, and in Yahoo's case, from Sunnyvale to Santa Monica, Bangalore to Beijing, developing organizational culture needs to accommodate distributed teams. So in the book, we talk about a principle which we call think global in the context of collaboration between and within distributed teams. And it's about accommodating things like uh, differences in language, spelling, customs, currency and time zones. So again, it doesn't ma- it matter whether your workers are remote workers or just uh, distributed across the globe. I think uh, you need to make that accommodation anyway. We use uh, several tools uh, at the organization that I work for that help to foster and uh, accommodate uh, or develop an organizational culture across our globally distributed companies. So there are many electronic newsletters that are devoted to sharing achievements, whether it's by region or by um, division of the company or for individual projects and people as well. Uh, there are also internal blogs, and uh, they can be for individuals, for projects, or for particular uh, segments of the business. And then for more technical information sharing, we have wikis uh, that uh, people can collaborate with. Yeah, great. Okay, now that's, uh, that's a good point, which I hadn't thought about, that this whole idea of building organizational culture, it happens whether or not you have out-of-office workers, if you've got any sort of distributed workforce. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. And, okay, so we'll look at the next item then, which is all about innovation. So innovation in the out-of-office worker is another common objection to out-of-office work is how much it harms innovation. And if you ask most people, they'll say that innovation works better when you are in close teams, I mean physically close teams. Some of the best ideas come from, as you said, around the water cooler conversations, Chris, or putting yourself in unusual situations like working in the cross-functional teams and so on. And... I know some people look at the great innovators of the past and they typically are people who work by themselves, but we'd still say that now 
that time has long passed and most modern innovation comes from teams, not individuals. Now that's, that's, I think if you ask most people, that's what they'd say, but there, there is a growing trend and a growing body of research that talks about valuing, valuing introverts. So these are the people who do do their best work by themselves. And I remember in the 1950s, there was this great idea called brainstorming. You were around in the 50s. Yeah, right? that's right. I, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wasn't even a twinkle in my parents' eye at that time. <laughs> but I think I'm pretty sure it's the 1950s. Alex Osborne started this thing called brainstorming, which is a pretty popular fad at the time. And uh, But the research found that it doesn't work. It may not have been the 50s. It may have been more recent than that. But it was very popular for a long time, and many organizations thought brainstorming is the right way to, to foster creativity and innovation. But the, the more recent research shows that that doesn't work. But what does work is a kind of reflective kind of brainstorming where people go away and do their own thinking and then bring it to a meeting. And, and yet, like most Western business culture, still favors the people in meetings who speak out and they speak first. But a lot of Eastern business culture favors and rewards exact opposite. So they respect people who listen and uh, have a bit of silence while they're digesting information. And then when they speak, it's quiet, it's quiet, thoughtful and well considered. And I guess as out of office workers, because we're not constantly in meetings, we do get a lot of time to, to reflect, think and work before sharing ideas with teams. And um, what's, what's been your experience there, Chris? Yeah, I think you're right. I think both are important, Gihan. I think uh, the, the, that quiet reflection fosters creativity and then being able to share those reflections with a team helps to, to take those ideas to, uh, to innovations, to new innovations, to develop them beyond just the idea and thought. Um, when it comes to innovation, uh, I think the data, it, it appear, it, Google seems to have the data to support the assertion that innovation benefits from face-to-face interaction. So at Google, they've elevated the measurement of innovation and interaction to a science. So they've gone to great uh, great analytical lengths to measure things like the length of queues and benches in the cafeteria in order to maximise interaction by employees in the hope that that interaction is going to turn into new innovations and products from Google. So while I don't necessarily have hard numbers that's going to challenge Google, challenge or support Google's data, I've got the next best, next best thing, anecdotes. <laughs> so last year I spent a week on site. It's something I do every year or two. And my experience then backs up the idea that face-to-face interaction fosters innovation. So I had many face-to-face meetings. I had several water cooler moments. In fact, they were espresso machine moments. And from those, in- from those interactions, new project- projects and ideas were hatched, and they have since delivered new tools and insights. So while that week was really unproductive, I didn't write a single line of code, I didn't do any development, it was very innovative. Yeah, and I think that if you ask Marissa Mayer, the, the primary reason for doing this out of, uh, for bringing people back in off, into the office, I think she would say innovation, and I think she'd probably say that innovation trumps all the others. So even if everything else was true for the out of office worker, if you create a more innovative organization, she'd be happy with that for Yahoo. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess that leads on to the, the fifth thing. Oh, by the way, I looked up while you were speaking, Chris, I looked up brainstorming on Wikipedia. And sure enough, it was Alex Osborne in, in 1953. Ah, spot uh, on. So yes, it's been a quite, it's been around for a long time and there's still organizations that do it, even though the research is showing that it's really not that effective. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? But uh, eventually you have to subject it to ground truth and get some real data on it. And that's what Google does a lot. And Marissa May is uh, borrowing from that. And the data suggests that face-to-face interaction is better. Yep, yep. Okay, so now let's look at personal choice because the, f- the four issues that we've covered so far have all been from the employer's point of view. So how to be more productive, how to collaborate better, how to improve the culture and how to foster innovation. But what about the employee's point of view? And one of the points we make early in the book is that working in an office is a pretty recent phenomenon. So just because we can only ever remember work being done that way doesn't mean it's always been done that way or that it's the best way. And uh, employees have rights too and they're entitled to a say in how they work. And until recently, out-of-office work's just been difficult, so it's just been the norm that you work in the office. But now that it's easier for many organizations, we should consider things like whether employees are just entitled to it, um, even if it does uh, cost them in terms of productivity or collaboration or team culture, even innovation. And I remember reading a quite contrarian blog post uh, recently, Chris, in the wake of this uh, the dis- dis- decision by Yahoo. 
by Yahoo, the blog post was called Working from Home is Like Saying No to Drugs. So the author's point was that the benefits that the employer gets from in-office work need to be weighed up against the benefits that employees get from out-of-office work. And the drugs uh, the drugs analogy was this. He was saying, look, if you could give people performance-enhancing drugs to help them be more productive and more focused during the day, then maybe you should do it. But of course you can't do that because they'd be right and people would just protest. They just wouldn't accept it. But maybe, you should, but that, you know, that's an example where the employee's rights have some have some sway in what the employees are allowed to do employees sorry allowed to do and uh, i guess that's what he's saying that if you if now out of office work is feasible and it's something that can be done well maybe employees should be entitled to it and we shouldn't just assume that they have to go into the office because that's the way it's always been done Sure, sure. But I think uh, companies are largely self-interested entities. Uh, Marissa Mayer's decisions shows that to be the case with Yahoo. They're focused on the bottom line and if they could force us to go to the gym and get eight hours sleep a night, uh, avoid alcohol and take smart drugs, I think many companies would, Gihan. But uh, rather than doing that, smart companies like Google and Apple and now Yahoo have created campuses and they've got free gyms and cafeterias offering free and healthy food because they know they're not doing this because they want to be nice people and uh, have uh, happy, healthy employees. Well, they will have healthy, happy employees, but they're doing that because those kinds of services offer a positive return on investment. Yeah, and I think you're right, Chris, and I think I, I guess the difference is that they're not forcing people to go to the gyms uh, that they're offering or go to the cafeterias and buy the healthy food, but they, but they are giving them that option. And yeah. uh, I guess that's the argument is, yeah, you can, you shouldn't force people to work in office either. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and taking a purely self-interested look at it, uh, the, the data tells us that uh, out-of-office workers are more productive and they're happier, uh, and that happiness leads to, to uh, improved retention rates, so you're not losing employees. But where where we suffer, and the data shows us this as well, is in, in terms of interaction, so uh, particularly where that uh, has an effect on innovation. And so that's why Google, Apple, Zappos, and now Yahoo want all their employees on site so they can interact face-to-face because that's more effective than doing so online. But I think this is going to change. I think that gap between uh, uh, the fidelity of face-to-face interaction and online interaction is going to close because you and I have both observed the radical effect that the Internet has had on ways of working over the past quarter century. In just the last couple of years, Gihan, we've seen significant improvements in video conferencing alone. So I predict that it's not going to be too long before we can use the Internet and various new tools to interact as effectively or almost as effectively as we do face-to-face. And it's kind of ironic in that it might be a company like Google, Apple or Yahoo who is drawing all of their uh, workers on-site and don't have out-of-office uh, offerings that uh, one of these companies uh, create the innovation that makes that online interaction possible. <laughs> I think you're right, Chris. So we don't care if they have to work like uh, yes. cubicle monkeys as long as we get the benefits of it. <laughs> In fact, I insist they do. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a good place to wrap up, I think, Chris. So we talked about the five issues, uh, which are productivity, collaboration, organizational culture, innovation, and personal choice. And I guess... There's no way that we can say that all five are going to have the same, uh, that it's going to have the same impact on all five in every organization, but it is something to consider. So do you have any closing comments about this, Chris, this whole controversy? Yeah, I think I think you've summed it up nicely there, Gihan, that it swings and roundabouts. There's no clear advantage one way or the other uh, across any of those uh, those those criteria that we've looked at, but that I think we can look forward to improvements in the way that uh, the internet helps us work out of office. It's why we wrote the book, because we could. it was becoming easier than ever to work out of office by taking advantage of the kinds of online tools that the cloud provides. And I think we're going to see further improvements to the point where perhaps uh, some of those differences that we've talked about today are going to be resolved. Yeah, and no, I'm pretty, I think that Marissa Mayer has done us all a big favour whether the Yahoo employees think that or not, I'm not sure. But certainly for us, just to to raise this topic, and it, it really did uh, become a big news topic, and not just in the tech media, which quite often a lot of these are, yeah. but even in the mainstream media, people were talking about work because because we're talking about how 
how work works and whether work doesn't work and when it doesn't work. So it really did become quite a quite a topical discussion. And I'm really pleased for that because it gave me the chance to uh, read a lot of interesting viewpoints and uh, really current viewpoints because lots of people had their say about it. And uh, we, we all got the chance to, to have a read through some of that and hear some of the pros and, uh, pros and cons of all the arguments. So I think it's a great it's a great discussion and it's certainly one that uh, isn't ending and I hope that it doesn't end and just doesn't fall by the wayside because it is something, as you said, that's going to, that is changing and it's going to become more and more common for organizations and, uh, and workers and people just uh, where they try to blend what they do with work and what they do at home. We'll also uh, share some of the links to some of that um, reportage and uh, discussion that you, that you mentioned on this particular topic in the out of office blog. Yeah, we will. That's a, that's a good point. So then that's available also at outofofficebook.com. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible, and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort, and freedom in your work life. So I hope you got some interesting insights and ideas there, especially if you're thinking of telecommuting, working from home, or you're a manager or a leader in an organization where your people and your, your staff and your employees and your teams are thinking about working from home. And also, as you heard in our discussion, with more and more organizations working all around the world, you have to work and collaborate with remote teams anyway. So some of those things become important, even if your employees are working in offices, they might be working in offices all around the world. Let's turn back to content marketing. And now I want to tell you how to create high quality content. Now there's some consultants who will advise you when they're talking about content marketing to keep creating and publishing new content. And I know that sometimes this can seem like an overwhelming task, but I think it can be just as effective to take one idea and convert it into multiple content marketing pieces, which saves you time and effort and still has the same impact. The key is that when you write content, what you've got to do is focus on the content that proves that you know how to solve your customers' and clients' problems. So then you publish it in, a, in as many relevant places as possible, and what that does is attracts high-quality traffic to your website, and that leads to a better quality of inquiries, which of course means that you get a better quality of clients. So that's the theory. Let's put that into practice. So let's suppose you start by writing an article. Let's take as an example an article with seven tips or ideas about something that you do. Okay, so for example, it might be something like, depending on your business, it will, it will be different, of course, but it might be something like seven ways to make your money go further, seven tips for having a difficult conversation with somebody that you love, seven no-cost marketing ideas. That's how you get started. So then the first thing is you write a four to five hundred word article on this topic. Now, you may not think you're the greatest writer ever, but you don't need to be. All you do is you start with a brief introductory paragraph. Then you're going to write your seven tips and each one's going to have a paragraph just explaining that point. And then at the end, you end with a concluding paragraph. And after that, you have a little bit of information about a product or a service that you offer that helps them work with this problem or solve this for them or help them take it to the next step. Now you've got a high quality piece of content. Now let's look at 21 ways to leverage that article. So number one, publish the article on your blog. And if you don't already have a blog, get one, talk to your webmaster about it, or you can create one free at blogger.com. The idea with your blog is to think of it as a journal for your business, as an ongoing diary for everything that happens. So think of it as the hub of everything that you do in your business. And in fact, a number of the other things that you'll do, you'll also copy them to your blog as well. But first, you can publish the article to your blog. Number two is to publish it in your email newsletter. And the difference between an email newsletter and a blog is this. The newsletter goes to their inbox, which people you know, value very highly. If you've got their permission to get into their inbox, then it's one of the most important places that they look at, and they look at it every day. A blog, on the other hand, is a website. In effect, every blog post that you create becomes a separate web page. So that becomes a permanent place, but the inbox becomes a temporary place, but it's something that's important to people. So if you don't have an email newsletter and you don't have software to create that, you can get some at MailChimp.com, M-A-I-L, Chimp, as in Chimp, as in the monkey. So MailChimp.com allows you to have up to 2,000 subscribers free and it's fairly easy to set up. 
Number three is to take the same article that you've written and submit it to a website called ezinearticles.com. So E-Z-I-N-E articles.com, which is one of these article directories. This allows other people to copy your article and use it in their material as long as they promote you as well. And you get to write a little resource box at the bottom of the article, which they have to cut and paste into their article when they, whenever they use it. And that'll have things like a little bit about you and your business and a link to your website. Number four is to post the article to Google+. Now, Google+, allows you to post entire articles. And the great thing about Google+, is because it's owned by Google, Google uses what you whatever you do on Google+, to influence your search results and more importantly the search results of the people who are connected to you and their friends. So do more on Google Plus because it'll actually make a difference to your business. Just start by taking your article and posting it on Google Plus. Number five is to offer to post the article on somebody else's blog. So look for blogs that reach the same target market as you but they're written by non-competing authors. This is not necessarily an easy thing to do and so the process is called guest blogging. But if you do it and you do it well, it can be very effective because you get access to somebody else's market by providing high quality material to them. So they like it because you're providing more material for their blog and you like it because you get in front of their readers. Number six, offer to submit the article to somebody else's email newsletter. This is the same idea as guest blogging except now you're writing a guest article for somebody's newsletter. Um, you've got to subscribe to a few newsletters to find out which ones are relevant to you and then build up a little bit of rapport with the newsletter uh, editor or the publisher of that newsletter and then submit your article to them. Obviously, your article has to be a good fit, so make sure you're not submitting stuff that's not relevant. Number seven is to actually take it offline. So print it on your letterhead and post it to 20 key people in your network. Yes, I do mean post it through the normal snail mail. People do still appreciate getting material by mail. And it is a point of difference. So those first seven ideas are about just taking that article in its raw form as text. The next couple are about creating an audio version for the people who prefer to listen. So number eight is to read your article out loud, record it, and post it as an MP3 file on your website or your blog. In fact, it should go on your website and your blog as a free download. So you're taking the same material and all you're doing is you're reading it out loud and recording it. Some people like to listen, so they'll download it from your website rather than reading the text. The next step, number nine, is to post the MP3 file to your podcast. Now, podcast is an audio newsletter, just like an email newsletter, but it doesn't go out to people's inboxes. It goes to their podcast reader, which is something like iTunes. So there's a little bit of extra work setting up a podcast, but if you don't already have podcast software and you don't have a podcast, uh, use hipcast.com, H-I-P-C-A-S-T.com, to create a podcast. It's not free, but it's very low cost, and with, with that, it sets it up so you can connect up your podcast to iTunes, so people who use iTunes will be able to get your podcast through that. Okay, so that's the audio version. Now let's look at ways to make it more visual. So number 10 is to turn it into a PowerPoint presentation and publish it to slideshare.com. Think of slideshare as like YouTube for PowerPoint. So you simply take your article that you've written and create a nine slide slideshow. So you create nine slides in PowerPoint. The first slide is just an introductory slide. And then each of the next seven slides, uh, you have one for each of your seven points. Because remember, your article has seven ideas in there. And you have the headline, the, the point there, maybe a brief description, and a nice photograph that goes along with that. And your very last slide is your conclusion. And of course, it has links to your website and your blog. And then you publish that to slideshare.com. It's free to use, and you simply take your PowerPoint file and upload it there. Okay, number 11 is to publish the same PowerPoint presentation to authorstream.com. Authorstream is similar to SlideShare. It's not as big as SlideShare, but it still has a large number of users. And given that you've already created the article and the presentation that goes along with it, you might as well publish it to both places. So 12 is to save the PowerPoint slides as individual graphics and then use them to create a series of printed postcards. So again, what we're doing with this is taking it from an online presentation to offline. So if you've got your seven slides 
the seven in the middle, as your seven big ideas, why not create postcards from them? And there are a number of services. You may have a, a local service in your area which will create postcards for you. You can just go to normal printer or you can use a service like vistaprint.com which will create them and ship them to you. And again, the idea is that people like getting things in the mail. All right, number 13 is to create an infographic using a site called Visually. That's visual, V-I-S-U-A-L dot L-Y. So what you do there is create, combine the data from your ideas with some nice graphics and it creates a single graphic file which is called an infographic. And then you publish that to your blog and give people permission to take it off your blog and post it to their blogs as well. Okay, we haven't talked about video yet, so let's look at that next. So uh, idea number 14 is to record a YouTube video. And what you do here is you take the article's content and you simply speak to camera. So you go through basically the same content as the article. You don't read it word for word because then it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound genuine. It sounds a bit artificial because it sounds like you're just reading and it doesn't come across well on video. But you know the ideas because you wrote the article and you know the ideas. So you simply speak to camera and just make it more natural. Okay, number 15 is to go back to your PowerPoint slides, save them as individual graphics, and then upload them to animoto.com, A-N-I-M-O-T-O. And that creates an animated slideshow. Animoto is a site that takes a collection of pictures that turns that into an attractive slideshow with music and animation. It was designed for things like photo albums. It was really designed for consumers to use, uh, use to share photos with their family and friends, but it does have a commercial version, so you sign up for the commercial license and use it to upload your PowerPoint slides as individual graphics to create an animated slideshow. And with that, you can then publish it to YouTube or you can publish it to your blog as well, and I think you should do both. Okay, the next thing is to expand the article to create even more substantial content. So those 15 ideas that we've covered so far are not really that hard to do with just the article content itself. The next few steps are going to take a little bit more work because you're going to do a little bit more writing, but not a lot. So number 16 is to expand each of the points in the article and then you've got, instead of a paragraph, you might have half a page about each of the seven ideas or tips or techniques in your article. And that then becomes a, a short special report which you publish as a free PDF download on your website. So it'll end up being about four or five pages long. And you start with a little bit of introduction about yourself, go into the report, and then finish with some promotional information about you, your business, and your products and services. So that goes on your website as a download. It goes into your blog as a blog post for people to download the PDF from there as well. Number 17 is now you've got the PDF file. Upload that PDF report to issue.com is I-S-S-U-U dot com. So in the same way as Slideshow you can think of as a YouTube for PowerPoint, think of Issue as YouTube for special reports. You simply publish your PDF file there and other people who are searching Issue can find it and, and view it and they can download it. Uh, issue also makes it available in a, in a nice little viewable frame which you can then take and embed in your blog as well. Okay, number 18 is to turn the article into a one-page diagnostic tool and publish that as a PDF report. So what you do with this is you take your original article and you've got your seven ideas, but instead of writing a paragraph about each of those ideas, what you do is you ask a question and you ask the reader to rate themselves on a scale. So you might have zero to five. How do you rate yourself on each one of these seven ideas or seven tips or seven techniques. So you turn each of the seven things into a question and that means that you get a, you get people to score themselves out of five for each one. So you end up with a score out of 35 and then you just have a little scoring sheet at the bottom that says something like, if you got zero to 10, then you should contact us urgently. If you got 11 to 20 and so on. And for each of them, you have a little action for them to take, which is really about them contacting you to either get more information from you or to use one of your products and services. Okay, the last few are about making it a live event. So everything we've talked about so far, the 18 ideas so far, are about creating the material, you publish it, and it does the work for you. But you can also make it a live event. It's a little bit more work for you because you have to be there for the event, but people can engage more with you and they get a better feeling because they get a better experience engaging with you live.
So the next three ideas, the last three in fact, are about live events. So number 19 is to conduct a free question and answer tele-seminar. So you can use a service like freeconferencecalling.com, there are a number of them like that, to conduct the tele-seminar. And what you do is you invite people on your network, in your database, and you say, I'm going to have a free tele-seminar on this date. We're going to cover the seven biggest mistakes that people make, or seven ideas for whatever. And then you start the tele-seminar by saying, okay, I'm going to just quickly introduce you to the seven ideas. You go through them, and you say, most of this tele-seminar is a chance for you to ask questions and for me to he be here of service to you. And so if you have an hour for the tele-seminar, the first five to ten minutes might be you going through those seven ideas, and then the, the bulk of it, 45 minutes, will be for you to simply answer questions. And the last five minutes, you close up by wrapping up, concluding, and again, promoting yourself, your business, and your products and services. If you feel a little bit unsure and a little bit nervous about running this live question and answer teleseminar, one thing that can help is for you to ask people who are attending to send you some questions in advance. That means that you've got the chance to do a little bit more preparation. You can order those questions in the order that you want, so you can answer them in the order that you want. And you know that when you come to the question and answer section of the teleseminar, there won't just be dead air when you first ask for questions, because some people will have sent questions in advance. The next idea is similar, but you run, this time you run a webinar. So you run a free educational webinar on this topic. So use gotowebinar.com. To, as a webinar service to conduct your webinar. Very similar to the teleseminar, except this time you've got slides as well. And you've already done the slides because you created them earlier for a PowerPoint presentation. All you're doing now is showing them to your webinar audience. And then again, you have an hour for your webinar. You start off by going through the seven slides and the seven points. Then you open it up for 45 minutes of question and answer. And then you finish with a concluding slide, which again promotes you and your products and services. The same tips apply if you're a little bit nervous about running a webinar, and especially a question and answer webinar. Again, you can ask people to send you questions in advance. And then you can use them to start off the questions and the answers and the discussion. Finally, number 21 is to use a Google Hangout to run a video conference call on the same topic. So this is similar to the teleseminar and the webinar, except that this time participants can see you as well. So Hangouts, if you're not familiar with them, Google Hangout is a, a new free service from Google that allows you to run a 10-person video conference call. Now, if you've got a very small group, you can actually run it for 10 people. But alternatively, you can actually have just yourself as the, the main presenter and you can have an unlimited number of people watching the hangout because when you run a hangout you can make it available on YouTube live at the same time as, as you're presenting it. So you can run it that way as a, as, as a presentation which you present and again you go through your seven points and other people can be watching it on YouTube. If you want to, you can have up to nine other people on the conference call live and they can be asking questions and you can be answering them and interacting with them. Okay, phew. There's 21 things that you can do with one piece of content. And I'm just scratching the surface of what you can do to create high quality content. Don't ignore other opportunities as well. And you may find in your business, some of these things may be more applicable than others. And there may be other things that I haven't mentioned that you might have other ways of to leverage that content. But if you're not creating much content now, just use this list as a starting point. So good luck with your content marketing. If you'd like to know more about this, I'm running two really practical one-day workshops in Sydney later this month. I'll show you how to set up your whole content marketing plan quickly, easily, and effectively. The first day puts your content marketing platform in place. We look at blogging and special reports, article writing, and social media, so that you can get the maximum value from publishing the content. And then on the next day, we look at making your ideas more visual, so things like slideshows and PowerPoint, video, infographics, animation, some of those things I've talked about. And I've designed those two workshops so you can come to one or both sessions, whichever one suits your needs. There's only a few weeks to go, so please, if you're interested, register now. You can find out more at gihanperera.com. Just click the links on the right-hand side of the home page. Also, 
Over the last couple of months, I've been talking about content marketing in Leverage You, which is my online program for members of my eGurus community. So I show you how to create that high-quality content fast and then spin it into different formats, which you can then publish online in different places. So the idea is that the people who see this content recognize its value, put it to use, and then contact you for additional products and services. As I've been saying all along, when they contact you, they see you as an expert and authority. So you don't have to work anywhere near as hard to make the sale. If you're not a member of my eGurus community, please join up. Just $55 a month and you get access to me and many of my resources, including this Leverage You program. Are you a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant, or thought leader? If you'd like to use the internet to get more business or deliver your material, join the eGurus community. Find out more and sign up at eGurus.info. So that's it for Expert Girl Radio this month. Hope you enjoyed it and learned something that you can use in your business. Next month, I'll be talking to Paul Archer about how the internet has changed the world of selling. I was going to do that this month, but I've postponed it till next month. So look out for that soon. You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.